Hey, my friend, welcome along to the Medicinal Chef's Nutrition Nuggets podcast, helping you get clarity on nutrition. I'm Dale Pinnock, the Medicinal Chef, best-selling author, nutritionist, and creator of Nutrition Coaching Monthly. Every week here in the podcast, I'm going to be answering your questions and discussing key topics around the field of nutrition to help give you clarity and to expand your knowledge. Hey folks, hope you are well and in good health. For those of you in the UK, I hope you're surviving the cold weather that is around us at the minute. I'm looking out my office window at the minute and everything is covered in frost and ice and I'm sitting here with about four layers on shivering like a good one. But never mind, we crack on. So this week it's all about fats. Get your fat straight. Week in, week out, I get dozens and dozens of questions about fats and oils and what fats we should be cooking with, that kind of stuff. It seems people are pretty confused, but really it doesn't have to be that complicated. For generations now, we have been told to avoid saturated fat. That's been the big purveying message that's been in the health world for a long, long time. Avoid saturated fat. That's the devil. That's going to cause heart disease. That's going to cause X, Y, Z problems. Now, In recent years, it's come to light that saturated fats might not be as bad as we first thought. Well, I'll get onto that in a minute. The big problem has arisen because of the public health messages that we were given and that were drummed into us on the back of this saturated fat message. Because this belief was held that saturated fats are completely devastating to our health... We were instead advised to move over to the, you know, the quote unquote heart healthy vegetable oils, things like sunflower oil, corn oil, soy oil, vegetable margarines, these kind of things. Because they were unsaturated, it was a very kind of one single line view. It was a very, very tunnel vision kind of view of the problem. Because they weren't a saturated fat, there was the assumption that they were going to be far better for our health, particularly our cardiovascular health. So the advice was very, very clear. Swap butter for margarine. Swap your lard and your dripping. I mean, you've got to remember the generation that this was. This started to emerge. Swap these things for a nice vegetable oil. That's what was drummed into us, and people took notice. I mean, certainly in you know, my parents' generation and things like that, the, the idea of trying to coax them back into eating things like butter, it was very, very difficult. There was always this, this real fear that these saturated fats were going to be incredibly detrimental to our health. Now, as I say, I'll get onto saturated fats a little bit later. There are some problems associated there still. That, you know, we, we can't be flippant about it. But this move away from saturated fat and the shift over towards the refined plant oils caused major, major problems. It actually caused more problems than it set out to solve, which is, uh, which is quite ironic. And the reason being is the actual fatty acid composition of these oils. Now, anyone that's followed my work for any degree of time will know that I'm a little bit obsessed with fatty acids. And the fatty acid balance is a serious, serious issue. And the problem that we have when we mainly focus on these kind of vegetable oils is that we start taking in far too much of something called omega-6 now you may have heard of omega-3 and omega-6 these are the essential fatty acids which means that we do have to take them in from our diet every single day we cannot make them ourselves. the thing is 
it's all about the amounts that we need of each, okay? Omega-6 fatty acids are vital for human health. Absolutely they are. In, in very, very small amounts, they regulate aspects of hormonal function. They regulate um, certain neurotransmitter receptor function. They also have got a role to play in you know, some aspects, some positive aspects of the inflammatory cascades. But our need for them is very, very small. We only need a very small, finite amount of omega-6 every single day to actually feed into the metabolic pathway that processes it in order to turn it into these beneficial end products. Because with fatty acids, it's all about the end products. They don't really do much in their own right. They feed into key metabolic pathways to manufacture certain highly active end products. With omega-6, a very, very small amount is needed. Once that pathway is saturated, that pathway that's actually processing the omega-6 into the beneficial compounds, once that pathway is saturated, any excess will get shuttled down a different pathway. Now, I said it's all about the end products with the fatty acids. One of the main end products of fatty acid metabolism is a group of substances called prostaglandins. Now, prostaglandins, they they regulate aspects of smooth muscle contraction. They can regulate aspects of pain signaling. But their main role is to regulate the inflammatory response. Three types of prostaglandin, a series one, series two, and series three. Now, series one prostaglandins are mildly anti-inflammatory. Series three prostaglandins are aggressively anti-inflammatory. But the series two, the one that lies in the middle, these are aggressively pro-inflammatory. These switch on and exacerbate inflammation in the body. Now, going back to the omega-6, once that pathway that turns omega-6 into the beneficial end products is saturated, once it's full, any excess gets shuttled down a different pathway and converted into something called arachidonic acid. Arachidonic acid then gets converted into the series 2 prostaglandins. These are the ones that switch on and exacerbate inflammation. So the take-home from this is, if you keep shoveling omega-6 into your body, what's going to happen after a while is that you're going to force-feed this particular metabolic pathway. You're going to force-feed the production of the series 2 prostaglandins. And what that will lead to eventually is what we refer to as chronic subclinical inflammation. Now, chronic being long-term, subclinical meaning that your toe doesn't doesn't suddenly swell up. You actually need to get um, like laboratory investigation to realise that it's happening in the first place. And that would be blood tests like erythrocyte sedimentation rate or C-reactive protein. C-reactive protein is a protein that's released by the liver in response to inflammatory changes in tissues. And erythrocyte sedimentation rate, that is basically when you take a sample of blood And over an hour period, in a long vessel, you determine how the the rate in which it separates. Because with blood, you've got the liquid portion, which is the plasma, and then you've got the cellular portion, which is mostly uh, the red blood cells, but then you've also got white cells, platelets. The erythrocyte sedimentation rate is how long it takes for 
the erythrocytes, the red cells, to separate from the plasma. And after an hour, you measure the amount of plasma that's sitting, that's sitting at the top of the tube and the amount of red cells at the bottom. And that basically tells you the rate of inflammation because usually red cells will sink very, very slowly. But if there's been a lot of inflammatory activity and there's a lot of inflammatory proteins, like fibrinogen and immunoglobulins and those kind of things coating the, the erythrocytes, they become much weightier and they sink faster. So those are the kind of tests that will tell you that you've got this, this chronic subclinical inflammation going on. But why does that even matter? Well, subclinical chronic inflammation is a big key in a lot of the degenerative issues that we have today. So looking at cardiovascular disease, it is, in essence, an inflammatory condition. Inflammatory damage to the endothelium, which is the skin that lines the inside of our vessels, really is the trigger for what eventually leads to an atheroma. It's only when you get endothelial dysfunction and endothelial damage that the plaque actually starts to form in the first place. And then once a plaque has formed and you get the fibrous cap over it, prolonged inflammation can make it less stable. So anyone that's in Nutrition Coaching Monthly, uh, the session on managing inflammation with diet, we talk a lot about this, how the stability of the plaque will determine risk of death. And it's how you manage inflammation long term. The, any plaques that formed... It determines how stable they will actually actually remain. Then also, the big one, cancer. Now, this isn't any kind of dramatic statement or, or me sensationalizing anything. You'll find this in any A-level pathology textbook. Prolonged inflammatory changes in tissues can affect genes within the cell, and it can affect genes that regulate cellular replication. And replication can get out of control. Plus, inflammation does have a role to play in angiogenesis and possibly metastasis as well. So um, it's, it's pretty important. So the, the, the take-home from this is, by moving over to these unsaturated plant-based oils like the sunflower oil, all the rest of it, on average in the UK, we are taking in up to 26 times more omega-6 per day, per day, than we actually need. So that's kind of force-feeding this subclinical chronic inflammation. Really easy problem to solve. Very easy problem to solve. When it comes to cooking, one oil, one oil for 98-99% of stuff, and that is a good extra virgin olive oil. Now, from a culinary point of view, cooking with extra virgin olive oil is heresy, but I don't care about that. I'm just thinking about it from a nutritional point of view. Now, the most dominant fatty acid in olive oil is something called oleic acid, which is an omega-9. Yes, there's some omega-6 in there. Yes, there's some omega-3 in there, but they're in very, very small, a uh, very small percentage in comparison to the oleic acid. Omega-9 fatty acids, these do not upset the inflammatory mediator production whatsoever. They have no bearing on prostaglandins. But oleic acid has, in its own right, got cardioprotective properties associated with it as well. 
So for the for most of your cooking, for especially for most stovetop stuff, extra virgin olive oil is going to be fine. And I know exactly the question that's going through some of your minds at the minute because I get it every single time that I, I talk about this. And that is, oh, I've heard you shouldn't cook with olive oil because it damages at high temperatures. Yeah, if you if you were to put it in the oven for like five hours, like slow roasting something, then you'll get some degradation. Any stovetop stuff, any regular kind of sautéing, stir-frying, that kind of stuff, it is perfectly stable because it just won't get hot enough to cause any damage. You get it, get it to a high enough temperature, like you stick it at 200 degrees in the oven for, for four or five hours, and yeah, you'll get some degradation. But, you know, I said 98 or 99% of your cooking, that is the time when you bring in a different oil, and that is coconut oil. Now, I am not on the coconut oil bandwagon whatsoever. I don't think it's, it's this heel all panacea that people make it out to be whatsoever. But for high temperature cooking, because it's a saturated fat, you do not get any degradation because there's no double bonds in the molecule to actually cause it cause it to flip around and create trans fats and that kind of stuff in the first place. So you can take it to very high temperatures and it's fine. But most of your day to day cooking, all about the olive oil. Now, when it comes to things like spreads, if you have margarine in your fridge, I want you to get yourself a nice big black bag, get that margarine, throw it in there, throw it in the bin and never look at it again. Just use a little bit of butter. Okay, don't eat a whole pack a day, you know, <laughs> a little bit of moderation, a little bit of sense with it. But keep away from the margarines, keep away from the vegetable oil. So that's that's my stance on the day-to-day fats that we're consuming with regards to how we're cooking one final thing on the saturated fat argument so in recent times we've certainly come to realize that saturated fat probably isn't as you know in itself purely as atherogenic as we thought it was i mean with with several different sets of circumstances which to be honest i'll probably do in a different podcast and i will certainly do in much more depth in nutrition coaching monthly when you kind of put the right situations together the saturated fat plus the refined carbohydrates plus the stress plus all these other different factors then yes that atherogenesis kind of picture is is much more likely but in its own right, it's probably not as bad as we first thought. That being said, what we're seeing now is because of that information coming to light that it probably isn't as, as problematic as we thought, some people are consuming it with absolute abandon. So some people are sort of, you know, having a steak for breakfast and, you know, cheese and butter at lunch and all this kind of stuff. And whilst they might be getting lean and getting shredded, I dread to think what's going on from a metabolic point of view because still what we have in abundance in animal-saturated fats is arachidonic acid. Now, do you remember before when I spoke about the Series 2 prostaglandins, the ones that actually switch on and exacerbate inflammation? The precursor to Series 2 prostaglandins is arachidonic acid. That's what excess omega-6 gets converted into, into the arachidonic acid. And... Animal fats are packed with arachidonic acid. Again, it's a, it's a fatty acid that we need. Part of the myelin sheath in the, in the nervous system is made from arachidonic acid. So it's not just universally a negative thing, but it's all, again, down to the amounts. Any kind of excess, any excess of arachidonic acid, it's converting over into PGE2, and that's contributing to inflammatory load. So whilst you know I'm all for like a good steak and stuff like that, happy days, don't mean that just because the evidence 
base is starting to shift a little bit, that all of a sudden it's a hall pass to go mental with those kind of foods because it isn't. We we ain't there yet. Okay. So now I'm going to move on to the questions. The questions have been coming in thick and fast. So thank you so much. And also, thank you for the love. We've had some really good numbers the first couple of weeks. You know, I, I wasn't sure how this was going to work, just kind of me here, me sitting here chatting away because, you know, you look at everyone else's podcast and it's all interviews with other people. But I put the survey on Instagram and you guys said that you wanted this. So here it is. And it seems that it's gone down very well. So all I can say is thank you very much for uh, the great feedback, for the numbers that we've had. We've charted very well. So thank you. So this week's question comes from Maria Santos Roman. Hey, Maria, how are you doing? And there's actually actually three little nuggets. She went in. She didn't just go for one question. She was like, look, while I'm here, I'm putting three in. So first one, Omega 9 says, you talk in length about the importance of Omega 3 and dangers of overdoing it with Omega 6. Well, isn't that convenient, what we talked about today? But you touch barely upon omega-9, I, I believe, contained in olive oil. Is omega-9 an important one? And if so, what are the sources and recommended intake in relation to omega-3 fatty acids? So, with that one, Maria, oleic acid particularly, which is an, an omega-9 fatty acid, we've got quite a lot of information about. We know that it has some cardioprotective properties. We know that it has some very positive influences on HDL, LDL ratios. We know that it does have some anti-inflammatory activity in its own right. There's not really any hard and fast rules in relation to intake because we can synthesize it. We can synthesize omega-9. We can synthesize that from 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 three and six. So there's not really a set point because we don't, you know, we'd have to do something very odd to be deficient in it. But the beauty of it is if your oils are omega-9 dominant, it means you're not feeding too many of the omega-6 fatty acids into those other pathways. So that's the real main benefit there. So the next part of Maria's question, or the next the next question really, is about calcium. It's saying most people, especially women, are recommended to increase their intake of calcium when they're approaching middle age and menopausal years. Most supplements and drinks are fortified with calcium carbonate, which I believe is very hard for the body to absorb. What is the best calcium form? And do things like K2 and vitamin D play an important role in calcium absorption? Blimey, that's a big one. We could actually do a whole podcast on that. But in short, uh, calcium carbonate is chalk. You've probably got 3 to 4% absorption of everything that's in that supplement, if you're lucky. Now... I think calcium. I mean, calcium citrate is good. Dicalcium malate is um, is good as well. But you're you're right in terms of other auxiliary nutrients. I mean, I use the analogy of bricks on a building site when it comes to calcium. Okay, purely in terms of skeletal health here. Calcium are like the bricks on a building site. Okay. It's the structural material, but without a team of like builders and carpenters and floorers and all that kind of stuff, nothing's going to happen. The bricks are just going to sit there. So you need the right nutrients alongside to actually get the calcium where it needs to go. And if you don't, you actually put yourself at risk of kidney stones as well, taking in too much. So you need vitamin D. The, the, the role of vitamin D in relation to calcium is to maintain serum levels levels of calcium and that's two-way traffic by the way it's not that vitamin d just pulls calcium into the skeleton vitamin d regulates serum 
concentrations of calcium. So when you take a calcium supplement, obviously serum calcium goes up. So the vitamin D kicks in to take that excess calcium out of circulation and put it into the biggest calcium store that we have in the body, which is the skeleton. Um, K2, absolutely. But then you've got copper, boron, silica, magnesium. All of those are involved in taking calcium and actually putting it to use. So actually getting it in to the skeleton, but then laying it down on the skeletal matrix and you know stimulating osteoblast activity, that kind of stuff. You need those auxiliary nutrients. So when you look at your supplement, make sure that it's got vitamin D, copper, maybe a little bit of zinc, definitely magnesium, definitely boron, uh, as well as the calcium. And the calcium, something like a citrate, amino acid chelate, or dicalcium malate. Now, Maria, the final question that you've got here, I mean, it's as much as a statement as a question. She said, this one's about schools. Last but not least, I've been poring over the school standards to understand the lack of quality over school dinners in this country. Unfortunately, the government still advocates a diet of low-fat milk and vegetable oils, low-fat yoghurt, and let kids eat cake, provided it's at lunchtime. I'm feeling quite powerless to fight against the catering company when the actual school standards defend a high-glycemic diet. Just wondering if you had any literature or foundation I should reach out to. We're facing the next epidemic of diabetes and obesity. It's, I've got to be honest, I've never really got massively involved in policy because it, it it can be a little bit like pissing into the wind, to be honest. It, it's it's very, very difficult to, to break through. This is why we need the big guns like Jamie. This is why the work that Jamie did was amazing. Even though some of it, you know, now the schools that got on board, it seems to have fallen by the wayside. And it's the same old story. It always comes down to, comes down to money, but... It's possible. We know it's possible. Look, I mean, I've shown it on on so many different programs and so many different features that you can eat well on a budget, and you know that is a scalable thing. I think you know we we need we need someone with a massive reach like Jamie or the like to to kind of get back into this again. It's yeah, I I feel your pain. I feel your pain, but there's there's nothing that I can really tell you, or nothing that I could particularly do. All I can do as an individual is be an educator that's my that's my role with with everything that i do is just to try and educate as many people as possible about the practical applications of nutrition and the sensible applications and the evidence-based applications and that's all i can i can do as one person with the reach that i have and hopefully like you know this information just keeps falling on the right ears and eventually we just we just reach like a a critical mass where you know where the the tide shifts but on that note it is time for me to sign off. Thank you very much for your time. If you want to dive deeper into nutrition, if it's something that really fascinates you, but you just want to go deeper into it and get more insight, then I run a program called Nutrition Coaching Monthly. Nutrition Coaching Monthly is your monthly nutrition school. It's an online nutrition school where once a month I deliver live interactive classes. And with these classes, we go deep into the information. Okay, so here we just kind of skim the surface. This is just like a nice, light conversation. With Nutrition Coaching Monthly, we can explore the anatomy, the physiology, the biochemistry, how nutrition interacts with all of that. The classes are taught live with a chat room, so you can talk to me directly, ask me questions, get to know your fellow 
community members as well. And we've got the, uh, the community is amazing. We've got members in in Canada, in Egypt, in Turkey, in uh, obviously a lot in the UK, in Ireland, in Australia, New Zealand. It is global. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing, and everyone gets on great, which is fantastic. So yeah, you can speak to your fellow students, but you can ask me questions as we go along. It's fully interactive. The sessions are delivered in webinar format, so it's like a, a PowerPoint slide, and we go through go through bit by bit, and you can always ask questions as we go along. And then also, once a month, I do just a live open forum Q&A. This is where I'm there as a resource for you. You can ask me any questions you want, and just use me as your personal nutritionist, your personal resource for an hour. Ask me what you want, as long as it's to do with nutrition and not to do with you know underwater basket weaving or anything random. So if you like the sound of that, or if you want to know more about it, if you want to take a free class, just head over to my website, themedicinalchef.co.uk, look for online programs, then when you go to online programs, you'll find Nutrition Coaching Monthly. That will give you an overview of what the actual thing is, and then if you scroll to the bottom, you can sign up for a free class, you can get an idea of the kind of detail that we actually cover in the program, and see if it's for you. But then also, if you wanted to join up, After listening to this, I can let you in for just £3 for your first month. All you need to do is, when you sign up, use the code ME43, M-E-F-O-R, the number three, all in uppercase, and that will give you your first month just for three quid. If you've got any questions that you want to send me here in the podcast, it's just dale at themedicinalchef.co.uk. And I will get them answered. So thanks, Maria, for the first one. We've got lots more coming up over the coming weeks. They've been coming in thick and fast. Until next week, see you later.